Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. In this episode, the first of two on this topic, we are talking to Dan Grossman about the history of asynchronous transfer mode. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we melt with the finest minds in networking. Well, good afternoon, Dan. I think it's afternoon where you are. Uh, yes, it's afternoon. Good afternoon, it's, Russ. It's afternoon, and we have Donald wearing Donald? a monster shirt. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> wearing a monster shirt, sitting in front of his guitar today. No frogs. And a bike. And a bike. No frogs, though. No, no those frogs. must be downstairs. All right, that's cool. So, Dan... Let's start with you. So uh, how'd you get into this crazy networking world anyway? I mean, did you fall into it accidentally or did somebody push you? <laughs> uh, I fell in semi-accidentally. Uh, I was an undergrad at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in the late 70s. And one of our graduation requirements was a project in your own major. Most of these were done outside of campus and I happened to wind up at DEC uh, working on DECnet and I liked the space and when I finally graduated I um, wound up working for a startup called CTX which uh, was ultimately acquired by GTE on um, uh, some Technology called X25, which was very new then, now is long obsolete. And I was working with uh, one of the major financial center banks. And after a couple of years, I got to be unhappy with the place. I moved on to Codex Corporation, uh, a subsidiary of Motorola Incorporated. And uh, Codex... Um, was best known for their innovations and modulation, but we also did a lot of networking stuff. And that's where I spent most of my career. Uh, the organization morphed from Codex Corporation, subsidiary of Motorola Incorporated, to <laughs> Motorola Incorporated, or in my case, Motorola Labs. And Along the line, I got very interested in standards, and this is how I got to be a so-called expert on ATM. All right. So, <clears throat> ATM. Tell us a little bit about ATM so that our listeners who, because this is not a technology that's often used today, and so not many people are going to know what we're talking about other than, again, thinking about some cash machine or something. Um, Believe it or not, we're using it right now. Oh, really? What are we using it right now for? Um, my broadband connection. I'm on uh, Verizon Fios, and uh, the older system was ATM-based. Uh, I think it's down to about 20% of Fios customers are still on ATM. Wow, I did not even know that. So just like just like ISDN, I always think ISDN and, and things like that are gone. But there you go. We're still using it. Yeah, we're 
spell use in it. Wow, interesting. So, yeah, again, so tell us a little bit about ATM. Like, what does it do? How does it work? Why? Um, well, you start with that, I guess, and then we'll move into the... Start by setting a little context for the times, because uh, I'm sure that some of the audience uh, were in diapers back then. Um, so this is late 80s to about 2000. Uh, networking was a lot of fun in that period. There was a lot of innovation going on. There were a lot of competing network architectures, uh, proprietary and standardized. Uh, in the academic realm, we were still arguing about principles. Uh, the speeds of the network were much slower than they are now. You could get a customer interface at one and a half megabits per second, what we know as T1. And if you tried really hard, you could get to um, uh, a signed interface at 150 megabits per second. Note that I just said megabits, not gigabits. Uh, the core was 600 megabits per second. There was some at 2.4. So a lot of the trade-offs we're going to be talking about involve those kinds of speeds and packetization delay and so on. Um, another thing that was going on at the time and still is kind of like now is the bellhead nethead uh, debate. The um, telecom companies were just becoming deregulated. They had a very uh, expansive view of their role in um, all forms of communications, and they had a certain mindset. And then we had the netheads who initially came out of the research community and had a radically different mindset. This actually resulted in two different kinds of standards organizations even, right? Yes. Right. I mean, um, the ITF is the netheads. ITF is the netheads, and ITF uh, always behaved like netheads. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> well, it's different. Uh, I was kind of shocked my first ITF meeting that um, no one was wearing a suit except Ben. <laughs> Greg, Greg Farrow says it's it's like a it's like a gathering of all the people with bad fashion sense or something like that it's like a fashion tornado or something like that he says. <laughs> all the fashion police <laughs> the itf is in town yeah it's really pretty strange yeah um, i think it would be, would be cool if we got everyone to dress up in a suit it would be funny one time <laughs> Does everybody own a suit <laughs> I, I have ties Notice he didn't say anything about a shirt or. <laughs> uh, the other thing about the uh, casualness at ITF was it extended the way that things operated, uh, particularly in the early days when it was accredited standards committees like uh, Committee T1S1, where the procedures were very formal and there was 
the, the, the notion of consensus was more or less the same, but it was a lot more rigid than IETF. And you didn't have the kind of uh, over, overwhelming personalities that you sometimes got at IETF. But we occasionally had fist fights, and I do mean this literally, I'll get to that later. And we had occasional disruption, and we had a lot of interesting debates, and it was a lot of fun. So one other thing that I should point out is that we had the phone network, which had been around at that point for 100 years, um, and it had just transitioned from mostly analog to mostly digital where mostly digital was um, uh, 3.1 kilohertz audio streams coded to about uh, 64 kilobits per second. And the entire system worked on multiples of 64 kilobits per second. Right, which is, one, which is how you got fractional T1s and et cetera, because everything came down to 64K segments or sections. Um, T, uh, TDM, time division multiplexing by and large. Um, and was this pre PN and I? I'm I'm going back in history before ATM was even invented. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. So we had the data networks, uh, and these were you know typically corporate things connected together with lease lines from the phone company or with X25. Uh, People were expecting audio and video over these networks to emerge, and ultimately, uh, they recognized the whole thing needed to be integrated. So we had a lot of debates about circuit switching, TDM versus packet switching, and there were all kinds of hybrids. And um, we ultimately got to a point that I'll discuss later uh, with uh, a notion called fast packets. But first, I want to get back to your original question. Um, ATM is an architecture and a suite of protocols and interfaces which defines scalable multi-service communications networks. Uh, the intention was to define a global infrastructure that could transport everything. And it was intended to cross technological barriers uh, among things like local area, wide area, uh, public, private. Um, it had some very different salient characteristics than uh, what we know from IT. Uh, first and foremost, and the thing that many people define it by, is that the unit of transport was not whole packets, but what were called cells, which were fixed size, 48 bytes of data with a five byte header. And when you had packets that were longer than 48 bytes, you uh, used uh, segmentation and reassembly to uh, chop it up into uh, these cells, and then reassemble it at the other end. And there was 
a lot of good reasons for that. I'll get into that later, too. Uh, an next salient characteristic, which uh, was an anathema to the IETF folks, is the ATM was connection-oriented, a.k.a. stateful. Uh, there was a certain amount of state information at each switch, which was bound to um, a connection identifier. And this was used, among other things, for next half determination. Uh, because it was intended to be um, a multimedia system, a lot of effort was put into traffic management quality service. Uh, a lot of research had been done in uh, maybe the early 80s, uh, whole sets of issues around queuing and um, resource management. So there is an ATM, a very, I'm going to say, complete system of traffic management. Uh, including things like queuing, discard policies, shaping, policing, scheduling, uh, control loop, admission control, routing, traffic engineering, and traffic contracts in um, increasing order of uh, granularity. Uh, around, well, maybe a little bit later, some of this started to uh, trickle into ITF in the form of IP integrated services or insert. And it, they went through a few different iterations, but most of the concepts were tested out first in ATM. Because we have virtual connections, we had to have some kind of a control architecture. Most commonly used was you just nail up a connection switch to switch. So you're, you're mapping um, uh, connection identifiers at the input to connection identifiers at the output. Um, DLCs, DLCIs, right? But I don't think they were called DLCs in ATM. Really? Um, VPIs and VCIs. Uh, right, right, correct. VPIs um, and VCIs. Uh, that, that was an interesting idea. Um, somebody realized some amount of aggregation would be a really good thing. So you had virtual channels, which um, essentially carried what we'd call a microflow, and virtual paths, which is a bundle of these virtual channels. Um, MPLS later on did it one better, and um, came up with label stacking. And I think, I think it was Juha Heinen um, at Telia had come back kind of late in the game and pushed for that. And it never really happened at ATM. So we had an ISDN-like control architecture in addition to the manual configuration. Um, we developed our own routing system. Uh, it was called PNNI, or PNNI routing, I should say, part of the um, uh, private network node interface specification set. And this was 
I would say much, much better than uh, what we have in, uh, in the IT world now, mostly because it involved the same people taking lessons learned and doing things differently. So there's no notion of an EGT or an IGT. It's one routing system globally, uh, can scale to domains of uh, uh, hundred levels deep as, as necessary. So you really can have a global routing system. Uh, path computation was done at the source, uh, much as um, we now have with uh, segment routing. And uh, quality of service was uh, built into the thing. So this was a link state protocol from what I remember, right? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, so um, with all that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the chronology of this thing and uh, uh, tell good stories. Um, okay. <laughs> again, I'm going to um, get back to the 80s. As we said, there was packet versus circuit discussions, integration, um, and some ideas like um, uh, burst switching, where you would have a TDM connection that was held up for um, about a packet length and then dropped. And another one was developed at Bell Labs by a group led by Jonathan Turner. And they invented uh, something they called fast packets. Uh, the papers started coming out as early as 1982. They got a couple of patents. But if you really want to understand the roots of ATM, go look in, I think it was IEEE Communications, a paper by Jonathan Turner by the name uh, named New Directions and Communications or Which Way to the Information Age. Uh, this was published in 1986. And here's the place that the vision got laid out. In the meantime, there was a lot of good research going on at switching architectures, some of which have come to back to bite us in data center architectures, uh, congestion control stuff, um, resource management, as in a lot of ways formed the basis for uh, uh, the whole idea of a single network transporting everything, IP or otherwise. So, uh, the telecom industry was just finishing up ISDN and more or less concurrently starting on frame relay and needed to look to the next generation of speeds and fees. So um, the work effort was called broadband ISDN. And there were a lot of meetings in Geneva over what it should look like. Should it be circuit? Should it be packet? Should it be 
uh, fast pack and should it be um, earth switched. And finally, the answer came out it's fast pack. And we're going to call it asynchronous transfer mode just to confuse the innocent. And from that point on, there was a mad rush in the industry, very much reminiscent of what's uh, been going on recently with 5G, that um, we have to get the standards out as quickly as possible. And if there's breakage, so what? Um, one of the first um, big debates was, how big should a cell be? And a lot of people were saying, well, make it uh, 64 bytes of data and tack a header on to it. Uh, some people were even saying 128 bytes of data and tack a header on to it. But then uh, French uh, uh, administration, the, the PTT, Post uh, Telegraphs and Telephones Administration, at the time, what morphed into France Telecom and now Orange, um, had this notion that with 64 kilobit PCM sampling and exactly 32 bytes of data per cell, they could get across metropolitan France uh, without echo cancelers. And at the time, echo cancers were kind of expensive, but this was very short-sighted. Uh, but the um, French PTT really dug in on this one. And ultimately, we came up with this compromise that said 48 bytes. And then uh, they tacked five bytes ahead or onto it, and that's how we got to 50. So there's, so there's actually truth to the story. Because what I've always heard is the 53 came from, because of 48 plus 5, but that the 48 came from a compromise between 64 being ideal for data, 32 being ideal for voice. Yes. So they came to 48. Yes. So, and, which just made everybody mad. Yeah, that, could you explain what an echo canceller is? Oh, okay. Um. In the analog phone network, you would get a, lot, uh, a little bit of signal reflected back from the far end to the near end, and you'd be listening to it, and you would get tongue-tied just because you'd hear an echo of your voice uh, delayed by just long enough to be really annoying. So at great expense, they got put these echo cancelers in. Uh, now this is probably uh, a one buck part, but at the time they were pretty expensive for yeah. Right, because what we what we tend to forget is that a telco circuit at that time, even even digitized, right, was simply a straight wire between the two phones that had been switched. So before digitization, it was actually switched through a set of relays. So it was actually a physical wire connection. Between the two set between the two phones, with some relays in the middle, so that you could connect different phones at different places. And after digitization, you still basically had what turned out to look like a, a circuit. So that's where the whole circuit switch thing came in. 
because it made sense in the telco world that you only had two parties communicating, so therefore set up a circuit. So, um, more to the point, everything in units of a voice call. Right. Um, so that indeed was where the compromise came from, and you can blame the French for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so they got down to um, trying to understand what kind of traffic you'd be carrying on this. Um, there was a notion that you'd really want to carry circuits over fast packets or over ATM. And you need to carry the timing with it. You need to have the strict guarantees that there isn't going to be a transmit time where there isn't a byte transmit. Um, and this, in practice, turned out to be useful for doing things like emulating T1s. I believe that uh, uh, BIOS Voice used it for a while, too. And then uh, we were looking at different flavors of uh, real-time traffic audio, video, and how they differ from each other. Um, for voice, particularly uh, voice trunking, as in from a PBX to um, uh, a central office switch, uh, there was something called AAL2, ATM adaptation layer uh, that had muxing in it and supported um, a statistical gain and supported 32, um, I'm sorry, uh, 64 PCM. And there were a bunch of lower rate coders that uh, were busy getting invented in that time. Uh, for the data side, unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of data heads in the room. So they invented something called AAL34, which was based on IEEE 802.6, which was a metropolitan area network standard that was adopted by a lot of the telcos as something called uh, Switch Multi-Megabit Data Service, SMDS. There really wasn't a lot of SMDS deployed, but a lot of people in the room were really fixated on that. And that caused a problem. AL34 was awful for anything like a computer. Uh, there were four bytes of he header and four bytes of trailer in each cell, leaving you 40 bytes of data kind of stuck in the middle there. And, of course, in computer architectures, everything is powers of two, or at worst, um, a power of uh, two powers of two, some of two powers of two. And there was a lot of unnecessary complexity in this thing and provisions for things that never actually happened. And in the meantime, uh, 
the applied research community in uh, in the industry, um, Sun Microsystems, uh, Xerox Park, DEC, um, started getting really interested in ATM as um, an ultimate networking technology. So the first thing that happened was uh, Tom Lyons from Sun uh, came bursting into uh, the Standards Committee, T1S1, with a paper saying, throw out AAL 3.4. Here's this new thing that we're going to call AAL 5. And what AAL 5 did was it took up an entire um, data payload with actual user data, except for the last frame that um, had uh, an end of frame, uh, a byte count, and some overhead CRC. And this was a lot more efficient, more to the point. You could, on a 16-bit bus, you could do it in three cycles um, without having to do a lot of messing around. Uh, the folks who'd already committed to AAL 3.4 were not pleased. And there was um, a fight that went on for several meetings uh, over, first of all, whether the U.S. should bring AAL 5 into um, the ITU at all. And if so, um, what kinds of provisions could be made in ATM? Uh, cell header for it because you did need an end of frame indicator at, on each cell so you could know look at the last eight bytes um, do the CRC calculation over that last uh, four bytes um, and the sides pretty much aligned with the computer guys the pure data networking guys um, pushing AAL5 and the telco guys and the telco vendor guys uh, going the other way. Uh, North AT&T, uh, um, AT&T Bell Labs, AT&T uh, Bellcourt. Um, and we finally wound up uh, in St. Louis, and we came to something like a compromise, and a bunch of us went to lunch at a Holiday Inn across from the meeting hotel, and <laughs> I sat at the head of this table with the AL34 folks on one side, the AL5 folks on the other, uh, trying my best to play neutral. And I finally got an agreement on paper that, yes, we would take this thing into CCITT. Uh, yes, we would arrange the uh, uh, three bits of the ATM header called PTI so that we would have an end-of-frame indicator. And we would, under no circumstances, use it for signaling. So, in other words, AAL34 had be implemented regardless. Um, 
So basically just a merger between five and three. No, it wasn't a merger. It was, oh, a, a we standardized both. And okay. you can't have five without three, four. Ah, I see. Right. So five, so, so three and four becomes a subset of five or a foundational piece of. of... No, no, they're, they're two separate protocols. And if you want to set up a connection from your end system to someone else's end system, the signaling protocol has to go over AL3-4. Ah, okay. Ridiculous. But that was the compromise we came up with. Um, it went to Geneva. and so the- It's a long way from the Holiday Inn Express to Geneva. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> of uh, doing all the standards work was you had to travel a lot. <laughs> you need to in particular because ITU was based there. Um, and sometimes you'd get to Eatontown, New Jersey, and sometimes you'd get to Paris. Uh, what, whatever happened to be going on at the time. So, um, at the end of this, um, the U.S. brought in AAL-5, and a couple of meetings later, everybody else in the world said, you know what, we don't like your compromise. We're going to take AAL-3-4 out as the, quote, signaling AAL, and we're going to use AAL-5 for everything, and if you want to implement AAL-3-4 as well, you can go ahead and do it. <laughs> but it's extra work for you, and we don't care. <laughs> extra work, and uh, some of the people who are heavily invested in AL three four had patents. Oh yeah, the whole patent game, because then you've got then you've got intellectual property tied up, and you want yours done instead of somebody else's, and you've already coded it, and beyond all that, it gives you patent licensing fees. For anybody else who wants to do it. Exactly. Um, there was one incident at a T1S1 meeting. I think it might have been the one before St. Louis, uh, where we had uh, Bill Bergman from IBM and Richie somebody or other from AT&T. I can't remember his last name. And these were big guys. I mean, sumo wrestler types. And they were out in the hall, and they were belly to belly, and they were screaming in each other's faces. And they had to be separated before they started hitting each other. And I kid you not. Wow. Everybody who thinks standards organizations are boring, they just weren't there for that one. (laughs) There, There were lots of incidents like that um you've got a whole variety of personalities going to these meetings some more aggressive than others and you got a lot of money at stake so yeah sure there's going to be yeah it's not just money it's it's reputation right it's this is my baby i'm going to become distinguished engineer or 
blah, 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 some title based on this work actually getting done and you're taking that away from me or I'm going to get published or we have, we, we've granted some college a huge grant and they're doing research in this and that money's going to go to waste and that paper's not going to get published and I'm not going to get those presentations at conferences. And yeah, it's, I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on that people don't understand in the background behind these, these arguments that uh, it's, it's as much ego and career moves as it is anything else. Oh, of course. And again, um, all these companies had um, internal policy. We've got to get as many of these essential patents into the standard as possible and uh, get ours in and keep other folks out. I had a couple of half-day lectures on this whole topic at Motorola. And I'm sure that everybody else did in their companies. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is one of the things that IETF has always tried to do is make it, it's an individual contribution. It's never a company, never a corporate contribution. It's always an individual contribution regardless. Um, and they try to keep that out of it a little bit. It doesn't always work, but they do try. Uh, yeah, when, when I was attending ITF, I think it probably was still that way too. Um, that was a bit of a sham. I mean, you know that people came in and their um, contact information had their company in it. And their company was paying the freight to get them to the meeting. And there's no doubt that their company's work was involved. But, you know, it was still. Joe Smith's um, uh, internet draft rather than um, AT&T's internet draft. Right. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what the note well says. (laughs) That's what it says, but you still got those same kinds of um, uh, money and personality issues behind it. Right. Okay. So um, switching back into the uh, chronology of all this. Um, until now, all the work was being done at accredited standards committees, um, T1S1 in the U.S., and then there were others in other countries, and then it funneled into uh, IT, ITU. And these were process-bound institutions for good reason. Um, you had to come to a consensus. There was no notion of voting as there, as in IETF. And you couldn't have one interest really uh, getting burned to the benefit of another one. There, there had to be some balancing of interests. And a lot of this gets into some antitrust law things. Uh, but it did tend to slow things down a little bit. So a bunch of companies decided this is going too slow, and they went and they created an entity called the ATM Forum. And it was initially a secretive little group that um, opened up and ultimately grew into the prime producer of standards for ATM. Uh, So they took in... uh, I think it was 96, 
um, whatever the ITU had, put it into a binder and called Uni three dot one dot zero, and it was very rough. And they they were selling this thing for a hundred bucks a copy or something like that, and that was what everyone was supposedly implementing to the, the standard, point. not not the cards or anything, the actual standard. Yeah, right. The standard, the paper standard. Right. Um, and that was pretty horrible as um, specification. And they uh, very quickly spun it into a Uni 2.0 specification. Um, and then there was a Uni 3.0 specification. And that finally became the one that you could implement to. Uh, and, and I'm sure the people who bought the, the uni, uh, uni 1 or whatever still had to buy the Uni 3. Yes. <laughs> Just like buying beta test software and you have to upgrade later and pay for the upgrade. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, there was one fun incident where... Um, we were under tremendous time pressure to get Uni 3.0 out. And a few of us were bound and determined that it was going to be a decent specification. And we sat around in uh, the offices of, uh, who was it, 3Com at the time, um, in, in a blizzard, doing nothing but dotting I's, crossing T's, um, and making sure tense is matched. But at least you're in an office, not in a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> in a blizzard. Yeah, that was a nice office. Um, uh, Bob Husak was the editor, and it was actually his, uh, his building. Uh, he got us a conference room where we sat up for three days. So, um, Back to um, ATM Forum, the one thing that they invented that was not in um, ITU at the time was something called the Interim Layer Management Interface, ILMI. And this was intended to be a kind of a rough configuration protocol. Um, the uh, switch virtual connection um, protocol was still in development. The software really didn't exist. And everyone was in a hurry. And besides, a lot of people were thinking it should be permanent connections anyway. But you still need to configure this thing. So they picked up SNMP. They gave it uh, an assigned virtual uh, channel connection, and they built a MIB for it, and that was how you um, did your basic configuration. So, so unit automation, it's kind of cool. Well, if you can call it that, I mean, it was still um, uh, created with CLI-like um, 
I suppose someone might have written a script. I don't know. I never heard of one. That's right. GUI was all the rage back then. Yeah. Well, no. Um, this was even before GUI. Wow. <laughs> I know I'm dating myself. <laughs> so, um, anyway, the ATM forum uh, decided to keep going and wound up producing, I think, 203 specifications uh, before it finally um, merged into the MPLS forum. And um, MPLS forum merged into the broadband forum. Uh, and if you go on the broadband forum's website, you can actually find all of the uh, ATM forum documents, uh, which helped me out a lot, incidentally, because uh, I was trying to remember a whole bunch of things I hadn't touched in a long time. So, um, among the working groups, um, there was a signaling working group. It was a traffic management working group. Um, some people, um, particularly, I think, again, I think it was three comp, uh, realized that because Ethernet and Token Ring were in pretty common use at the time, and then there was IP, and then all these other proprietary layer three protocols running on top of it. You would really need a way to uh, bridge a LAN onto ATM, and because of uh, the broadcast and multicast capabilities and so on, that became a non-trivial task, and it wound up in a pretty large document called LAN emulation. Oh, my goodness, Lane. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. With the bum, which, by the way, we've reinvented about 10 times since then, including EVPN bum and other things that we've done many, many times. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the first part of this history of networking at the Network Collective on asynchronous transfer mode. Be sure to check out the networkcollective.com for more great content and come back and join us for the second half of this history of ATM. <laughs>